You're listening to Cooper Talk. Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper, and remember, I'm only as hip as my guest. I gotta tell you something, people. You know, I watch a lot of TV, and Joanne watches much more TV than me, especially now that there's this TV, we've had this network called Start, and we have all these different TVs, and she's always watching old TV and new TV. And I always look at the writers and the directors, because the actors, I usually know, a lot of them have been on my show, but I always look at writers and directors, and a few weeks ago, uh, Rich Wilkes, who's been on the show, sent me a message, and he said, are you interested in having Dan Dworkin on the show? And I was like, I know that name. And so I knew the name from just seeing it so much, because he's written for so long, he's been on so many great shows, and I looked him up, and I'm like, holy crap, he wrote on Cold Case, which is a show I love growing up outside Philadelphia, and my guest today is Dan Dworkin. How you doing, Dan? Hi, I'm... I'm well, cold case, huh? That's interesting. Well, it's funny. I, you know, I saw you. Well, that was you with the second show, I guess you were, were, uh, worked on. But I, I watched that show a lot, and I remember one night I was watching. I would always watch it, and it was like back to back episodes. And Reed Diamond, who's been on the show, and Robert Romanus, who's been on the show, both got killed in back to back episodes. And I was like, yes, I'm like, I wanted a trifecta of one more episode of Cold Case with a Cooper Talk guest getting killed. Oh, wow, that would have been amazing. Yeah, I mean, if, if you break down the uh, Jerry Bruckheimer procedural stable from those that era, I'm sure, like, there's thousands of actors who have been killed. So, <laughs> so you've been writing for a long time. Uh, your show, Lost Symbol, just, uh, it's well, you found out it's not going to be picked up? Correct. Yeah, we found that out a couple weeks ago. Now, what was, was the process? Uh, what was the process for that? Like, how long did you have to wait? I mean, do you sit there? Are you in limbo? Or, or I mean, it must suck sometimes because you put all your heart and soul into it. Um, in terms of how long you wait, it depends on, I guess it depends on what network you're on. If you're on a broadcast network, ABC, CBS, NBC, uh, historically, at least, you're going. they're going to be on a little bit tighter uh, schedule so you're gonna they if you have to be renewed for a fall broadcast a fall renewal and then so it's a little bit uh the the signposts are a little more clear if you're on cable or streaming especially if you're on netflix or something like that i think it's super fluid because you know netflix or hbo or something they space out their shows um quite a bit in the case of peacock which lost symbol was on yeah i, I mean we waited i don't know it was a couple months uh, from the time the last episode of season one aired and we we it's weird they don't whereas again if you're on a broadcast network you know you can just go online and look up what your ratings were if you're on and now netflix has started announcing what like their top 10 shows are of the week they kind of give out those ratings but it used to be super secretive and with the network like peacock it's still like i still don't know exactly how many people watched but you kind of get the sense in the second third hand kind of trickle down uh intelligence i was getting um that it was doing good but it wasn't doing it wasn't the breakout hit i think they were they, that that network needs right now so we knew it was kind of on the bubble so it wasn't like a huge surprise it didn't that it didn't get renewed now what was it like writing during COVID? i've talked to so many actors and you know actors have to get on set and they have to get tested what is it like when you're a writer because one i would think you don't know if you're going to be able to shoot the show. I mean, when, when everyone started, I'm sure when you started writing shows, you thought, I'm going to write the show, we're going to go to production, we're going to... What has your life been as a writer during COVID? Because it's a lot different than an actor because you can still work. But once again, I think it would be, you can work, but you don't know if anyone's ever going to see it. It was, when it first... Well, I'm sure everyone probably has their great writer COVID stories now, but since we were on, on we were about, we were prepping the pilot for Lost Symbol in Toronto... And so I'd been up there for like a month and about two days from when we were supposed to start shooting the pilot, everything got shut down and we flew home and then we didn't go back. So that was in March. And then we didn't go back until December to shoot the pilot. Um, but uh, after we did shoot the pilot and the show got picked up, yeah, then we had to do a zoom writer's room, which obviously everyone in town has been doing now for a year and a half or whatever it is. And initially, uh, it was, I mean, I do quite a bit of working at home anyway, so that, that aspect wasn't bad. And I was pretty excited about it at first, because you're saving a lot of time on your commute. You know, if I have an office in Hollywood and I live in Sherman Oaks, I have to drive, that's an hour and a half I'm spending in the car each day that I don't, as good as whatever podcast is that I'm listening to, still not worth it to be in the car for 90 minutes a day. Um, so yeah, it was, uh, 
I thought it was going to be super efficient. And at first it was, but then I started to realize that I became kind of impatient with the Zoom writer's room process in a way that maybe I wouldn't have if I was in a physical room with actual people, because you have to sometimes just stare at that whiteboard um, when you're breaking an episode and kind of have it go through many, many different incarnations before you land on what the right incarnation of a given story is. And I would feel myself just because of, I don't know, the, the, the claustrophobia of like looking at a screen, just kind of saying, okay, I think this one is ready to go when it was, that was very premature and it probably hadn't like baked long enough on the board as it were. So towards the end of the season, I started to realize it was uh, kind of the limitations of the process, but I got to spend, you know, I spent a lot more time with my kids during the course of a day than I normally would have. So that was great. And, um, you know, I took walks around my neighborhood and played with my dogs. And so for, uh, quality of life, it was, it was nice. Uh, efficiency of work, maybe slightly less nice. Now, when you, you know, you're, you're one of the creators for uh, The Lost Symbol. Take, take me through the process. Because, you know, you, you create it. And now, did you have a, do the hand in casting? I mean, how was your process in this show? Because I know every, every writer is different. You're, you're, a, you're a veteran you've created different shows. So you're not just like some guy going, Oh yeah, here, you know, what was the process for, from, for, for the lost symbol? Um, well, and, and, and also when I talk about this, I, I, it's by extension myself and my writing partner, Jay Beatty, cause we kind of did everything together on this as we do on all of our TV stuff. Um, and on this one, it was unusual. We'd never adapted anything before. So we'd always created, completely original material in terms of the pilots that we wrote and the shows that we created before. So yeah, this was uh, CBS studios came to us and said, uh, we have this Dan Brown book and they had just actually fired the prior writer off of it. So they it had already been kind of sold to NBC as a project, but then they were looking for new writers to come in and kind of give their own take. So we read it. Um, it's a long book. And, uh, you know, it was like, I don't know what it was, 500 pages or something. And we, we had to get back to them quickly. So a combination of reading and um, listening to it, like on Audible, got through the whole thing in like three days and said, okay, I think that there's something here that we can make our own. Um, certain elements of the story that I was attracted to and certain elements less so. And uh, so we kind of did uh, kind of our original take on the material, came in, pitched it. They said, great. Uh, and you have uh, a month to write a script. This was a super compressed process because like I said, they'd already had another writer on this pilot and they already had a deadline in mind. So when they got rid of that writer and we came in, it was already, the race had already started. So we wrote it and yeah, and answered your question with, I, and I'd listen, I've listened to some of your other podcasts and I listened to like your Scott Rosenberg, uh, I don't know if he's the only other showrunner uh, type person, but that you've interviewed, but like, yeah, he, 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 when he spoke about how the showrunner process is super, it's totally immersive and like the hardest job in Hollywood. I don't know if it's the hardest job in Hollywood, but it's it's very hard. It's super labor intensive because you are involved in every facet of the process. You're involved in obviously the writing, but all of the casting, all of the producing, onset and offset, um, all of the hiring, uh, to the degree that you want to be involved in wardrobe and production design and everything, that is all kind of under your umbrella. And so Jay and I uh, try to split things up as much as possible because it is, you know, to do all that by yourself is really hard. And he takes certain departments. I take certain departments. And, yeah, so we cast that show and and shot it very quickly. Got a really cool director, Dan Trachtenberg, and he shot a great pilot. They picked it up. They said, great, now you've got nine more episodes to do. And then we got our writer's room together, started writing, and flew back and forth from uh, L.A. to Toronto, and as did some of our other writers, and produced – seemingly really quick, quickly, nine more episodes uh, in a short amount of time. And, and that was it. Now, how, how'd you get into this biz? What, what, were, were, did you always want to write? Were you a kid who wrote or were you a kid who liked sports? I mean, I've done some writing. And when I was really little, I loved sports. And I had a, a stand-up comedy career for about six years, eight years in the early, like, late 80s. So I've always been attracted to the business somewhat. Well, but what's your backdrop? I, well, I... Did not. I always. I guess I always liked writing, but I was not. I was not someone who. I don't think I had like an amazing aptitude for it at a young age. I. I, I liked it. I. I may have fallen. I in high school. I. 
I was that kid who had his, got a hold of his parents' video camera and started making little short films, almost more as like to supplement um, my homework assignments. Like instead of writing a paper or something like that, I would make a little movie and turn that in. And so it was almost like an aversion to, to doing things the right way. I thought of more different ways of doing it. Um, so it all stemmed of like, I don't know, in a way, a laziness. But then I slowly started to realize, oh, wow, I, this is actually pretty cool. And then when I learned that there was such a thing as film school, which I didn't understand when I was a junior in high school, um, but by the time I started applying for colleges, I realized that was a thing. Um, and, uh, you know, applied to USC, did not get in, applied to UCLA, got in. And then, you know, my junior year got into the, the film program there and uh, got out and started working as uh, various kind of low-level assistant jobs and toiling away, trying to write failing eventually getting a writing partner and then uh who, who smartly suggested we should try tv considering neither of us could could finish or sell any features and so that's what kind of launched us into tv now that was your writing partner jay right correct now now how did you guys meet was it something that you just were like pas on a job or something or you just knew friends or new friends because it's been a very long successful relationship very long. Yeah, people are always amazed. I mean, there are obviously writing partnerships that have gone longer, but it's pretty long. Um, yeah, we, we we just had overlapping circles of friends and uh, at one point started uh, talking about writing together. Because again, I, I was like really bad. And to this day, I'm pretty bad. I'm just not, I'm not a super, TV's different. TV allows me to be organized in a way that writing features doesn't. Writing features, I'm like super disorganized. I don't, and you mentioned someone like Rich. Well, Rich is, he's obsessed uh, with, uh, screenplay structure and, um, he'll, he'll like send texts to me and a couple, one of our other friends who's a writer about, Hey, this is what Dan Harmon says about this story circle. And he'll, and I just, my eyes kind of glass over, like, I can't, I just, it's just, I don't know if it's ADHD or what it is. I've just never been great with structure. So, um, yeah, it's, uh, it's, uh, yeah. Anyway. So, you and Jay, you decide you're going to write together. What do you tackle yeah. first? Do you tackle like a spec script? Do you tackle, do you try to get an agent? I mean, what angle do you come to? Because I heard, you know, a lot of times agents, you know, well, TV shows are more attracted to partners because it's two for one, basically. But kind of, yeah. What, yeah. What, um, what, was your, what was your strategy when you guys decided to get together? Did you write a whole bunch of specs or did you, what did you do? We, yeah, so when we started writing TV, this, and this will date, this will date us, um, we, you know, yeah, as you know, you need to have a sample of your work, um, preferably two samples of your work to get an agent and have that agent send around. So we, we wrote a, a CSI spec, which gives you an idea of how long ago, the original CSI. And that was, I think, in retrospect, like a really mediocre sample, but I happened to, you know, so much of this business is kind of luck and who you know and those kinds of things. And I had a friend who I'd gone to college with who was an agent at kind of a boutique uh, literary agency. I gave it to him and he said, this is good, but not good enough. And if you have something else, basically, like, like some of the guys here have agreed to meet with you, but, you know, they want you to have something else. So we had a little meeting with the, the agency and they said, if you can go write something else that's bolder and, you know, pushes the envelope and will really get yourself noticed, then, you know, we'll consider you. So, <laughs> so then for some reason, our idea of bolder was the practice, which again, I mean, dates us a little bit. We wrote a spec episode of the practice. It's just so crazy because now, you know, those shows are so down the middle compared to all of the great stuff that's on TV right now that like kind of blossoming writers have to choose from in terms of writing specs and things like that. So we wrote an episode of the practice, but we did push, we did, we wrote, we came up with some fairly outrageous kind of eye catching stories that where they read it and they're like, this is what we need. This jumps off the page. They signed us and we got super lucky because our agent who is still our agent to this day, very quick within a matter of, uh, I feel like a couple months sent it out and got us our first TV job. Uh, which was on um, Dick Wolf's Dragnet, which lasted about two seasons and was awesome. And we've kind of just been working ever since because, uh, you know, in TV, it's interesting. I've been on, you've looked at my resume, so you've seen, I've been on so many canceled shows. Like I've been on so many shows that have been one season and done. And the bad thing about that is, um, obviously it's bad if you like the show. Um, it's bad that it gets canceled. Um, it's bad in that you don't get the stability of being on a show. Um, so financially it can be bad, but it's good in that if you are, if you get along with people and you are good at 
writing TV, then when that show blows up, all of the writers kind of like spores blow into the wind and land on other shows and then call you later and say, hey, I'm on this new show. Do you want a job? And so that's kind of what has happened to us throughout our careers, being on these shows that have gotten blown up, but the writers have gone elsewhere and hired us away. And that has created our TV career, by and large. Now, back to Dragnet. What was it like going into that writer's room for the first time? Because were, were, you, the, were you the new guys? Was there a bunch of grizzled veterans? You know, because you always know the sitcoms, the sitcom rooms, you know, it's a bunch of, like Seinfeld. Yeah. I know a few of the writers. It's a bunch of New York comics, you know, and then they get a young guy and you're like, uh, it's like, what was it like for you guys going into Dragnet? It was, it was the greatest. It was definitely one of the, I mean, because it was also new to us, and and we started making a little bit of money, and that, it was a unique it was a unique staff dragnet because it was just Jay and I, and there was a mid level writer, and then the showrunner was a guy named Waylon Green. I don't know if you know him, but he's like this legendary screenwriter. He wrote, among other movies, The Wild Bunch, and um, he. Uh, so he, he like lived through Easy Riders, Raging Bulls, like that whole era. So he was the showrunner because he'd been in Dick Wolf. He'd been written for Law and Order, but he'd also like, you know, been a script doctor in all these amazing movies throughout like the 70s and 80s and 90s. So he was an awesome guy to learn from because he was like an older guy who'd been through it all and was just so cool and kind of just didn't give a fuck. Like he, he, he was not one of these guys who was tightly wound and everything was so precious. It was like life, he was more of a life is too short kind of guy. And so that kind of imbued you know, us with this, with this great relaxed, you know, kind of attitude for our first two seasons of TV. Actually, he left after the first season. So yeah, it was just him. And it was another executive producer named Robert Nathan, who was another like really seasoned cool guy and us and one other guy. And we were in these, these bungalow, this bungalow on the universal lot. And within um, our first season of being on that, we wrote four of like the 12 episodes, Jay and I, and got to go on set and produce them all and just learned. It was just like, we were thrown into the fire. Didn't really know what we were doing on set, but kind of just learned. And um, best, it was definitely one of the best, I feel like, experiences you could have for your first show. It was, it was, it was great. So it was really fun. And then, that, you know, that got canceled after two seasons. Yeah, but is that depressing? I mean, you know, you're, you're both, it's your first job. It's a great experience. You're making cash. You know, I mean, you know, TV writers do all right. So your, your life, you're probably, like anything, you probably think, well, if this goes for five seasons, you know, that, that residual baby, that, you know, that stuff. What was it like when it got canceled? Did, did, did the studio tell you? Did your agent tell you? I mean, how did you find out? Because it's your first experience of getting canceled. Um, I, again, like on so many of these shows, I feel like you, you just know which way the wind is blowing and it's never like a huge surprise. I've been surprised uh, maybe once out of all the shows that I've, that I've worked on, surprised by cancellation. So, yeah, I don't remember who exactly told us. I, think, I just think we all knew it was coming. The show, like, that was an interesting show because the first season was very, very much a Dick Wolf procedural. It looked like it. It felt like it. It was shot like it. Um, and then the ratings were kind of, it was floundering a little bit. So the, the network was like, well, bring it back in season two, but it needs to be retooled. So they brought on some new showrunners who Jay and I had remained friends with and worked with the Pape Brothers who were great. But they did a whole different, it, it had a new look. And it had a new cast. I mean, Ed O'Neill stuck around, but the rest of the cast was new. And that was kind of an effort to, to, to boost ratings. And that didn't really work. And we knew it wasn't working to boost ratings. So we knew it was going away. Now, then, did Cole, was Cold Case your next gig? Did that come pretty easily to you? Yeah, one of the guy, one of the writers from, uh, from Dragnet, who left in season two of Dragnet, went over to Cold Case. And so, you know, by the time season two of Dragnet got canceled, he basically said, hey, I'm on Cold Case. Do you guys want to come over? We're like, sure. And so that, that was one of those nice little kind of overlap situations I was talking about where we just kind of pivoted. Now, as a TV writer, was it, was it for like the script? Because Cole Case, you know, it's the flashback and it's the flash forward. When, how do you attack a script like that? Do you, you know, the, you know, the whole story, you know, you know, you know, the beginning it's Cole Case, you know, the end, you know, they're going to, they're going to find it. It's always, someone comes in and says, and you get the music, Ooh, you know, someone, I'm looking for someone. How do you attack that as a writer? Do you sit there and you know the beginning and ending and you just write it all out and then put the flashback scenes in and tell a story? Or do you just sit there and go, a flashback scene will work better here or will work better there? That that show, I mean, it's been so long since I wrote on that that show. But I, yeah, that show, procedurals like that are pretty pretty regimented and, and 
like have a, a structural framework that you can kind of plug things into. Um, that show was super hyper structured where you knew you were going to have, I, I forget what it was, but like one flashback per act or two flashbacks per act. And that was all laid out. The, uh, the showrunner on that show, Meredith knew exactly what she wanted, which is always a good trait in a showrunner and knew exactly where everything needed to be. Um, so that was, that was, uh, that makes things a little easier. Whereas like shows that are more open-ended and serialized, uh, it can be, I find more rewarding creatively, um, but can definitely be more challenging um, in terms of how you, how you structure things. Cause you never, you never quite know how you're going to get to places. Now, with you and Jay, with your writing, and then this can go from the beginning until now, you know, musicians, a lot of times musicians will be a guy write the music, a guy write the lyrics. How do you guys write together? Is it, is it someone more the dialogue guy, someone more the story guy, or, or what's your working relationship? We, uh, right now, I mean, we've gotten to the point where we'll kind of, if we're co-writing a script, we'll kind of break it together and kind of uh, outline it, come up with the outline beats together. And then when it comes to the actual writing, writing of dialogue, um, we'll just kind of split it in half and then we'll trade. Uh, and so one person will look over the other's stuff and, uh, you know, kind of give, give an overview of what needs to be done. And that's where, you know, you get, it's really hard. It's like, that's where there, there can be some tension, obviously, you know, like if one person thinks that something needs to be changed and the other one, the person who wrote it thinks it's fine. So that's a dance always will be. Um, I feel like there, there, there needs to be, uh, I don't know how other partnerships do it in our partnership. I know like I, some, I feel like someone always needs to do like the last pass um, before it goes in. So I'm kind of that person just kind of making sure all the, eyes are dotted and the T's are crossed and that everything's polished. Um, so yeah, we, we've, and it, and it depends on the show too, how the process works. But, but at this point, uh, we kind of just split it. Now you wrote for criminal minds, which, you know, I, I, my wife has watched every episode of that. I've watched, you know, I watched it like it and that's some dark shit. I mean, there's some really, I mean, there's some crazy stuff in there. How do you guys go about writing a script for that? Is it, is it, does the room talk and go, okay, I mean, you think about it, you're, I'm talking to you, you're a nice enough guy, you see the stuff on there and you go, holy crap, I mean, there's some, there's some crazy shit on there. How does it, how do you go about that and then just sit there and then years later, you know, your, your kids see it, they're probably going, oh my God, dad, dad's, dad's got a pretty wicked, you know, wicked mind. I don't, I don't want to piss him off. It's funny because it, more interesting to me has always been that, not that, maybe this is predict predictably, I think this way, but like, not that the writer is twisted for coming up with it, but that all of America and the world is twisted for loving it. Like I am, I am, uh, I, I remain baffled, not, not, it's, it has nothing to do with the quality of the show. It's the content. Like I remain baffled that criminal minds is, is so like I have had of all the shows I've ever worked on, like the, the criminal minds, fans that come out of the woodwork are the most intense for sure. Um, and like, and it's, it's one of these multi-generational, you know, it's like friends or Grey's Anatomy or one of those that kind of finds new generations. So like my son who is 13 um, at his middle school, he has a classmate, a girl who found out I worked on criminal minds back in the day. And she is like, he comes home every day. And he's like, oh my God, like he's scoring so many points socially with, at least with her. I don't know. Like, so I'm happy to be able to do that for him kind of, but I find it weird. I've had friends like text me that I hadn't talked to since college and say, Hey, my daughter who is like a teenager saw your name on criminal minds. Can you text her something? I'm like, Are you, really? Um, so anyway, it's fascinating to me as far as writers coming up with the material. I don't know. It's, it's, I don't know. We were writing pretty dark, twisted stuff pretty early. I, I don't like it as much anymore. Like when we were, when we were young, like for me, dark, more dark and more twisted was, was like, it couldn't be too dark and twisted. And now, now I'm like, I don't know if it's having kids or whatever. Like I, I, I definitely like it, like it less. Um, and it's just a lot of that stuff started is based on real stories. 
So that helped, you know, on that show, there were FBI profilers who were actual FBI profilers who were consultants and they'd kind of give you ideas and, and, uh, they've seen a lot of dark twisted stuff. So you just kind of run with it. So what happened with that show? You're writing a, did you leave for a, a deal, a development deal or, or what happened? We left, I mean, it's funny in our career, we, we have, we have never stayed on a show longer than two seasons, which is crazy. Uh, like I said, a lot of them have been canceled after one season or so. And then, um, one or one or two occasions we left for other jobs and on like one, well, criminal minds actually was the one job we kind of got laid off from actually. We never actually been fired, which I kind of wish we could say we've been fired because there's something kind of romantic about saying I got fired because there's usually a good story behind it. But we haven't really. We got laid off. They kind of downsized that staff. And yeah, we were, I think, pretty much asked not to come back or maybe they wanted us to take a pay cut. I don't remember. So yeah, we left. And it's crazy to me because I know I know Erica Messer, who took over as showrunner after we left or a few years after. She was on that show for the whole run, which was like, what, like 14 seasons or something? And she, that to me is crazy. Yeah, I couldn't do it. I couldn't. We get. I get really antsy. I think, and unless the show's like perfectly, uh, you know, I, not not that I would always have. This sounds like a luxury that most people don't have, but like for me, I feel I feel like I would really go a little bit nuts if I wasn't if I wasn't super into something creatively. Like if it wasn't a perfect creative marriage to to, to stay on a show like that for like four or five six years, I don't think I could do it. Like, I think I just kind of, I just, yeah, I can't separate the, the, whatever it is, the passion from the work or whatever. I can do it. I can do it for a season. I can do it for two seasons. Right. I think three seasons, but getting into season four and stuff, I think, I think the, the monotony or whatever it is, it, it, unless it's a show I'm super, super passionate about, I don't know if I can do it. Now, during this time when you're working a lot, were you guys getting, were you creating pilots too that weren't getting picked up or I mean, and, and how do you balance that with a staff job? Like the staff job ends and then you, someone says, okay, write this or how do, how do you, how do you work that out? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, we, yes, we were, I, um, I think around the time of when, when we were on criminal minds or maybe, maybe after criminal minds, we started writing pilots and getting like kind of blind pilot deals um, where, yeah, we just carve out time. I know when we were on revenge, we worked out a deal where we only worked three days a week because we wanted the other two days a week to write these two pilots that we'd sold. So yeah, you just have to figure it out. It's, it's a, it's a lot of work definitely. But if you, I personally was very driven by, like I said, I'm driven by things that I'm really into, you know, that, that helps me get energized. So like these pilots that we would come up with were our original ideas that, usually I was pretty passionate about and that would help motivate me to push through and um, do kind of enormous amounts of work, which it ends up being if you're working full time on a writing staff and you're writing like two pilots, that's a lot of work. So um, yeah, that's, that's, that was, that was the balance pretty much. And then, yeah. Now, was there any pilots of the pilots you wrote that you really thought were going to get picked up? I mean, you sit there, but you sit there and go, okay, this is a short thing. Or did someone of a name get attached? I mean, how did that work for you? No, like I said, I haven't, there haven't been many surprises for me. Like I said, I feel like I can, you can always not, I feel like you can generally read the tea leaves on these things and know, you know, you hear murmur, murmurs about what's going to get picked up and what's not. Um, I, there was one that got kind of close, um, when we again, it was one of the ones we were writing for a bench, but I but I knew I, I kind of sensed it wasn't going to get going to get picked up. The, the the times where I've been surprised by things not like I mentioned, maybe there was one time. Uh, it wasn't a pilot script. It was we did we did the show Matador, um, which you know most people probably never even heard of because it's on the El Rey network. Which which but it was it was the next to us going on to Dragnet for season one. Um, doing Matador was our best, I think best experience as writers because it was the first time creating a show and um after season one they didn't bring it back for season two and that was a surprise like and i think i think it was i think everyone was we were surprised and and but but that's a that's an it was a fledgling network and no one i, I don't think we were ever really clear on what the metrics were for success on the network but that that was that was one that was that that was tough that one 
Now, how did you go from you created that show? So it was it one of your pilots that got picked up, or what was the process to finally getting that on? Was it someone else's idea? Well, that El Ray was Robert Rodriguez, right? Is that uh, El Ray was Robert Rodriguez? Yeah, it's his network, but that show was yes, we, that was not our original idea. That was a show that um, Bob Orsi uh, had sold, and his company Kurtzman Orsi at the time had they had sold the pitch to Robert Rodriguez and, and the pitch was essentially um, undercover soccer player, like, like a guy, guy works for the CIA, but goes undercover on a soccer team, uh, LA based professional soccer team, because there's some corruption happening behind the scenes in the ownership or, you know, some other behind the scenes facet of, of this soccer team that's connected to international crime ring. It's like, that was, that was the pitch. And, Robert was like, great, do it. And then Bob wanted someone to kind of co-create it with. So we had a relationship with his company from something, something we'd worked on them. Anyway, um, they brought us in and um, they said, what do you guys think? And we thought it sounded awesome because it was kind of a blank slate. Like Bob had those kind of tent poles for the, for the show, but otherwise creatively it was a blank slate and we knew creatively we could kind of do anything because the L Ray network was very unique in that there was no rules seemingly like there was, you could kind of do anything you want. And they, and they also didn't really have creative executives. Um, it was literally like Robert Rodriguez was kind of, whenever, it, whenever there was a situation where we didn't know if we could do it, like it, we didn't know if we could say fuck. Um, and we shot a take where we had the actress say it and then we're in the editing room and we're like, wow, this, this fuck take is way better than the non fuck takes. Can we, can we use it? Can we air this? And everyone just starts looking at each other and we're like, let's call Robert. And we just like called him up and we're like, Hey man, can we say fuck on your network? And he's like, I don't know, send me the clip. And we sent him the clip and he has text back. He's all, it's great. And that was it. That's their standards and practices, like was Robert Rodriguez. So like any time and, and we could like cast anyone we wanted. There was no kind of vetting process as long as we did it for the we were under budget. Like, you know, as long as so all those things were, were pretty amazing. And that was an awesome opportunity. We, we shot in L.A., which is kind of a rare thing. We, we cast a bunch of awesome people who you know, for a lot of them it was like their the biggest thing they'd done so far and it was just kind of like a big family and we created all these wacky storylines and it was just like this great genre mashup of kind of like action comedy sci-fi weird like it was super fun super fun now how'd you end up with the creator title though because someone pitched it and then this guy came but you know when you look at it, it says creator how does that how does that happen in hollywood how does someone end up because as you said it was someone else's pitch, but then you guys developed it. So it is your baby. It is your show. And you basically did create it. But how does that work with titling for you? Um, in that case, uh, I think it was just kind of up to Bob and Robert. And I think we, Jay and I were definitely the co-creators of the, I mean, we, we did the work of creators. We created all these characters and, and stories and stuff. So Bob, I think we shared creator credit with with bob orsi on that and that one was pretty pretty clear cut i think there's other instances like you know sometimes it gets murky the titles on lost symbol it was obviously like they weren't going to give us a creative by credit because dan brown create wrote the book and we used his story and his characters and there was no question about that so in that instance you get like a developed by credit which i think is what we got on scream also um obviously because that was an existing franchise when and and, and that that was a whole different different animal because we wrote the first pilot and then kind of got, I guess we kind of got fired from that. So we've never been fired from a staff, but we got, we got, they moved to another writer. I guess that's not getting fired, but we wrote the first pilot of scream and we created enough stuff in that pilot that we wrote um, character wise and story wise that they gave us a developed by credit on that show, I think. So, so yeah, it, it, it depends. There's all kinds of credits you can, you can, you can get. <laughs> No, that's funny because you say credits. So, you know, okay, so you look at your IMDb and your co-executive producer, consulting a producer, executive producer. What's the, what's the difference? I mean, I mean, until you get to the showrunner, but I mean, what's like like with Scorpio, you were a, a, a consulting producer. What What's the difference between a consulting producer and where we are on like Revenge, you, I mean, Retina, or like Mercy, you were a co-executive yeah. producer. What's the difference? 
That's a great question because the difference between consulting producer and co-executive producer sometimes is nothing. It, uh, li- I mean, literally nothing. It just, it, it just for, for whatever reason, you decide one day that you, you want a consulting producer title instead. I mean, I think historically a consulting producer would be someone who is there with the um, understanding that they are going to work on that show, but they're also going to be developing their own stuff on the side. Like that, I think is where like consulting producer comes from. So um, oftentimes that has been the reason why we've had consulting producer because we've had pilot deals that were in existence when we went to work on a show and we had to work out with the showrunner, like the, they had to be cognizant of the fact that we were going to be working on the show, but we were going to have to be doing meetings and stuff on our other projects and you know, but but again, th- between a co-executive producer and a consulting producer, it, it can it can be, uh, yeah. Sometimes there is no difference. And as far as the other producer titles, I mean, you probably know this, but like the other producer titles in TV, essentially, it's just a it's a hierarchy of of, of writing seniority usually. So like, once you're at uh, co-producer and then producer and then supervising producer and then co-executive producer, that's just seniority essentially. You having worked your way up. So you had another show, and it's funny. Years ago, when I lived in L.A., uh, I had a guy on my, a guest on my show. And then when I lived in Burbank, and before, right before we moved back east, I go down to my mailbox, and that guy is at the mailbox. So I remember me and my wife were hanging out, talking in front of the place, and he walked in, and I said, what are you up to? And he said, oh, I just got cast in a show called The Crossing. And the guy was Grant Harvey. Grant lived in my building. Oh, shit. And That's I, awesome. it, was, it was funny because someone had introduced me to Grant and he had not really done a lot of acting, but they said he, he was on America, one of that, this, whatever that, some one of his shows where he, where he played the heartthrob type dude. But I remember him just walking and I said, what are you up to? And he, he said it so nonchalantly. He goes, oh, I'm on a show with Steve Zahn. Now, yeah. tell me, tell me about The Crossing. And, and it, we were in the midst of movement, so I never got a chance to watch it. But seeing the previews, it looked really, really good. I mean, how did that show come about? And then, did you guys know Steve Zahn, or how did the whole process start? That that show was, yeah, so along with Matador, The Crossing is like kind of the high, emotional high watermark for for um, our TV career, I think, because that was a, the, you know, the other show that we created, kind of out of whole cloth. We created every element of it. Um, and yeah, we had, we were under a uh, deal at ABC at the time um, where we were working on one of their shows on staff, but then you know, again, with the understanding we were going to develop pilots and it came time for us to pitch pilots. And we just, I just had an idea about, um, you know, this, this was, I mean, this is still happening, but this was, it was really the, the peak of like uh, migrant uh, flotillas in the Mediterranean capsizing and people dying. It was just horrific news every day. And so we kind of took that idea and, and turned it into a time traveling refugee story. And so, yeah, they really liked it and we went through it. And Steve's on came about uh, because the network to their credit, their, their casting people said, oh, what do you think about Steve Zahn? Like, for some reason, they were really hot on Steve Zahn, which was the coolest thing in the world. It's just not what you expect from an ABC show. Like, you, like it just, so it was an amazing idea. Because, um, you know, he's not that traditional leading man type, but he's a genius actor. And, yeah, he, he was awesome. He was cool. Um, that whole show was that that was another situation where that show was like kind of kind of like a family, slightly less so than Matador. The Matador cast was a little bit younger and they were all local, like and we all hung out in L.A. together and stuff. But The Crossing was a really cool experience, really hard. The pilot was, I think, really good. Um, yeah, the trailer they cut for it was really good. It had kind of a sweeping kind of uh, feel and kind of a cool look. And then, and then, yeah, it, it was a situation where uh, it didn't come back for season two. Uh, writing was definitely on the wall. It was, it, it floundered in the ratings. It was, it was like, there's a lot of, there's a lot of things I could attribute that to. I think, you know, one thing I would never blame it entirely on this, but it wasn't one of the frustrations you have in TV, I'm sure in features as well as like promotion, obviously, and how much is something promoted and is it, is it maybe even more importantly is promoted the right way. Um, so we had kind of, kind of a cool, I think a uh, sci-fi show that was, it felt like sometimes maybe was promoted as more of kind of a, uh, emotional drama. I, I don't know. I don't know. And then, and then the timing of when it came out was very weird because we were like the last of their mid season shows to come out. So they had, I think maybe kind of, um, already, 
expunge their marketing budget. But then also the show just didn't, it didn't, I think the pilot was super solid, but then the subsequent couple episodes maybe didn't, didn't keep up people's attention. And then like, I feel like happens a lot. It happened on Matador too. I think there was a lull, I think creatively in like the, the episodes two, three, four, maybe weren't quite, didn't match up to the pilot's quality, but then the second half of the season, like five through 10, it really got going again. So I feel like the people who stuck around through episode 10, through the, or whatever it was, was it 11 episodes, 12 episodes? Um, I feel like that was probably pretty rewarding, but there were just not a lot of people sticking around <laughs> to the end. But so. Now, how does that happen? I mean, when you set a lull, is it, is it, you know, you write the pilot, you put all the time into it. And then is it something like, you know, like a band who starts playing, you know, they, they have that, that concert and they get signed and then they're not sure exactly where it's going to go. And then it takes a few to get in gear. Do you think that's what happened with you guys? I mean, you said there was a lull, but I mean, as the creators, did you, did you feel that way? Or did you just sit there and say, looking back at it now, you can say, you know what, we, we were a little bit, we just didn't get the momentum yet. Well, it's pretty, I, no, 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 I know exactly what happened with The Crossing. It's very specific. It was it was the second episode, which people tend to say is like the really hard episode on a show. Like, because pilots, you have a lot of time to, to make good. You have, you have far more time to develop it and prep it and really pay attention to all the details. And then by the time you get, get ordered to series, you're writing not only the second episode, but you're, you know, you're breaking episode three and four and five. And so you're doing a bunch of stuff at once. So you get to pay less, less attention to the second episode. And in the second episode, uh, we had a script that everyone really liked. And then when it was shot, for some reason, it just, all these holes showed up that weren't on the page that were exposed on film. And we realized, Oh man, this episode actually is not very good. And what happened was again, if we had more time when you're on a broadcast schedule and you're compressed, like you're shot out of a cannon and you have to keep moving forward because you're, you're, you're working on multiple episodes at once and you have to keep churning them out to make air dates and things like that. And we had to basically chuck about a third of the second episode and and redo it, like try to create new stories for that episode, new scenes, new ideas that would somehow that we had to not only write, shoot, in some cases, cast, redress things, create new locations, whatever. That's hard enough, but then to make those things fit continuity-wise with episode three, four, five, six, seven, you're setting up things for episodes that you're writing concurrently, and it just killed us. Like we, we, I remember we, we brought the, the network came into the writers' room like I don't know once or twice to hear a, our new pitch on episode two, and we kept having to go back to the drawing board, and then it was just yeah, that was that was a tough one. That was like. We actually ended up like, it was, yeah, it was bad. It was bad. Because like, like I said, the second half of the season was, was quite, was quite good. But that episode two just hung us up so much that we weren't able to, I think, pay enough attention to like the episodes immediately following. Now, did you have, and for all your shows when you've written, even though, you know, some have gotten canceled after the first season, do you already have the second season in mind? Or are you all just concentrated in the first season and say, okay, we'll do the cliffhanger or whatever, and then we'll figure out where we go. I mean, do you, or do you have, when you, when you come up, you and Jay come up with the show, do you have a whole, the whole arc or do you just have little arcs because you don't know if it's how long it's going to go? Um, we had, uh, in the case of the crossing, like very broad notions for like the first seasons two and three. Um, super broad. I always keep open the possibility that, I mean, it's not the possibility, it's the foregone conclusion that like 80% of everything you plan is going to change, I feel like. So I'm never too hung up on on what, uh, now, then again, you're talking to a guy who's never had a show go past season one that he's created. So, so I don't know if this would actually... Um, work going forward but i've never been too terribly hung up on what season two or three looks like because i know so many things are going to change as we as we do season one that it's going to kind of shift where everything would need to begin in the season two and um i'm always fairly confident that we can come up 
with with something great. But yeah, I think you need to have you need to have broad ideas, if for no other reason, because oftentimes the network wants to hear that. Um, in order to set the show up, they're going to want to hear a little bit of something. And um, sometimes if you have an idea, like if you have kind of a rich sci-fi idea or something like that, like I feel like we did for The Crossing, those, I mean, it's such fertile ground for, you know, propelling yourself into another season because the ideas are so big and you can always kind of start in a different place. In the case of The Crossing, you could start in a different time. Like, so I was never too worried about it. Now, you also wrote on Star Trek Discovery. Now, were you a Trekkie? I mean, I'm sure some people would, if, if they found out they were going to work on Star Trek, they'd probably shit their pants. Because I know it, it's just, I mean, I've known actors who've been on an episode of one of the offsprings of Star Trek, and they say, they say, you know, everybody, the, you go to the convention and all the fans know everything about your career. I mean, were you a Trekkie, or what, what was that like going no. on to a show like that? I mean, was that something just a job to you, or... Or did you have trucky friends who were like, oh, my God, oh, my God, man, you're working on that? I had, I, I think I had a couple, yeah. And I was not a Trekkie. I mean, I like Star Trek, but definitely not a Trekkie. Didn't know uh, much about the mythology beyond, like, the really super surfacy, obvious thing. So, yeah, that was that was basically just a job. That was one of those consulting producer jobs. But we knew, we knew I had friends who were on the show already and um, knew um, – you know, that was, again, that was Alex Kurtzman's company, so knew them. Um, so there was kind of a mutual trust there in terms of they knew we would do diligent work, I think. And, um, and yeah, it was that, that's, it's a very in-the-weeds, you know, show, Star Trek. Like, there's a lot, there's a lot, especially, yeah, it's interesting because I went, there's a Star Trek exhibit at the Skirball Museum um, that I went to recently because my father-in-law is a big Trekkie. And just looking at the timeline, they have a big map there, which I think we had a similar thing in the writer's room on Star Trek that shows all the intersecting timelines for all the different shows and, you know, different. And it's it's insane. Um, and so there was actually one woman on staff who who she she she'd written several, I, I feel like, Star Trek novels. Um, and she was kind of the go to mythology person. If you ever had a question about what's canon, what's not canon, can we do this in this timeline? Can we not do it in this timeline? Like she would always have a ready answer. So that was pretty cool. Um, but yeah, that was cool. It was different, different type of show. Never went on set on that show. They shot in Toronto and we never went. So that would have been, you know, a different, I don't know if I'd like that experience that much producing a show that's like entirely on a stage, basically using green screens and stuff like that. Um, but, but yeah, that was interesting. Now, also, you worked for American Horror Story. What season was that? It was, I think, the last season that aired, 1984, it was called. It was the kind of Friday the 13th slasher I one. watched that. I'm, I'm going to tell you a very funny story about that. In, in, that, in that season, and people, if you, if you didn't watch it, tough shit, uh, Lamal from Kajagugu <laughs> gets killed. Well, last year, at around Christmas time, I'm interviewing Lamal. And I asked him, I said, you know, you're on Kajagook, uh, you're on American Horror Story. And he only knew because his nephew saw it and called him and said, oh, my God, Uncle Lamal, you you just got killed on a show. But uh, what was that show like to work for? Because we watched that because I'm a huge, I mean, I'm, I'm, an, I'm an 80s guy, college and high school in the 80s. I interview a lot of 80s people. What was it like writing for that? Like, because it, it's a certain time frame. And it was great. I mean, we, me and my wife watched it. We loved it. But what was it like working on that? And are, were you a big '80s fan? Because you're you're a little bit younger to have actually really enjoyed the the crazy '80s. I uh, yeah. Well, first, it's weird that Lamal didn't know. I figured there's lots of uh, legal things that need to happen before you can kill a real person on screen. But like, uh, <laughs> but that's interesting. Yeah, that was insane. That whole story was insane. Uh, that I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm kind of young. I mean, I, I, what I'm 49, I born 72. So I, I, I'm a huge horror fan. Horror is like my, my super crazy passion. So I was really happy to, to work on that show. Um, it was, uh, an interesting experience, like kind of in terms of the, the, the writing staff, uh, everything on that show was group written, uh, which means, uh, there's not one writer going off and writing an episode, which is the case on most shows. Um, now, now there's a lot of group writing. Actually, we did group writing on Lost Symbol. Um, so th that was interesting. I'd never, I, I'd done that once before maybe. So that's interesting. So that's a, that's a situation where you see someone's name 
credited on the episode, but they it, it ends up they really only wrote like twenty percent of it or something like that, which is interesting. Um, so yeah, that was cool. That show's just insane. Like that was that was really a lesson in talk about like not really having a um, an idea of what the the structure is going to be of a, of a show like that. <laughs> that's a, That's a great example of how you can you cannot know and you can have, I, I think, a lot of success because that show, I did not know episode to episode what it was going to be, what kind of insanity was going to come next. Um, the whole Lamal thing was insane. I mean, if you remember, it was it was Richard Ramirez was a character and, and he was like on death row in the show and ends up he was like a huge Billy Idol fan in real life. So someone I don't know if it's Ryan, probably Ryan Murphy said, you know, let's have let's have, let's do a music festival at the camp and, and break Richard Ramirez out of prison so he can go to see Billy Idol. And then all these other acts kind of came to the camp and Kajagugu was one of them. And yeah, Richard Ramirez, I believe killed them all in the show, which is just, I mean, that was just one of many insane things that happened on the show. So well, yeah. you, you said, you said you weren't really, you know, the structure. So like when you get done a writing day with a show, like, okay, cold case, it's very structured, you know, act, act, yeah. act this. Yeah. I mean, you probably know when you're done on a day of cold case for, for like American Horror Story, when you don't know what the structure is, like when you leave, from work, do you sit there and go, I have no idea what I'm going to do tomorrow. I mean, how does that work? Uh, oh yeah, no, that was the, that was the case on American Horror Story for sure. It was, it was a unique situation where, um, yeah, it was, it was a lot of, again, like, and I don't know, I'm kind of, I'm kind of mystified by that one. Cause it was so, again, people ate that show up. People really loved it. And there, the process there was again the opposite of something like a cold case or something like that, where, where, like you said, you know exactly kind of what you're doing on a daily basis. On this, it could the story could literally spin out into absolutely any direction at any given moment. So, um, which it was just fun. I find that creatively, that's super fun. I mean, not putting yourself in a box and literally just saying the only. I mean, it's great because someone like Ryan Murphy is just like, I'm going to do this, and I don't care because I can and and people are probably going to love it and if they don't whatever most people don't have that kind of confidence most people are probably too afraid to say like i'm just going to do whatever comes into my mind that's what's going on the screen so uh more power to him for sure now is it is it easy you know you know between american horror story and the crossing and then you did outer banks and the lost symbol you went from creator to producer to creator is it easy to go from creator to producer or do you feel like you're missing do you feel like you want to call the shots um it's 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 mixed it's it's uh i think after we've run a show like right now i have no desire to go be the showrunner on a show because i'm so I, I, I'm not that exhausted anymore, but the process of doing Lost Symbol is so exhausting, like we talked about before, just so immersive and so all-consuming that I'd be happy to just go and be a writer-producer on a staff somewhere for, like, the next six months. And then, you know, think of what the next thing is going to be in terms of what we create. So um, I don't mind that at all. I do like when it comes to our ideas, when, when it is an idea that we have come up with and it's our show, I do like being able to call the shots because if you have a vision for how you think something should be, you, you, you generally want to have, you know, uh, creative control over, over what shows up on the screen. Now you've worked for network a lot and you've worked now. Do you find it easier though for young writers? Do you think it's easier for them to get, jobs now because there's so much work or is it something that the jobs they don't get is quality i mean if you land on a network show you're you're pretty much guaranteed a longer season what's like for you what what's your view on how hollywood treats its writers now and is it easy for a young easier for a young writer now than it was for you when you were a young writer i yeah, it's this real counterintuitive situation where it does seem like on its face it should be easier for young writers to get jobs because it seems like there is so much more programming with all of the new cable and streaming that's happening. But I get the sense that's not the case. Like it seems like 
it's just as hard, uh, which really, again, from a math perspective, doesn't seem to make sense because there should be more jobs, but I, I just feel like it is as competitive uh, as ever. Um, and as far as how, like, like, like I, when people come to me now, because, you know, a couple times a year, someone will either email me or I'll, I'll get an email from someone saying, Hey, I have a, my cousin is, is, you know, graduating from college and wants to be a screenwriter and come out, would you talk to them? And I always talk to them. And if someone has a sample, I, I'll try to read it. Um, I always definitely tell people, I mean, this is not like the most sage advice, but like, if like it's harder now than when I got in, I feel very lucky to have gotten in when I did. And unless you have a white hot burning passion to do it, like don't because I feel like you're going to need that. And that's, that's like, that's my straight talk. Like, it's not, it's not like the, it's, that, that's not like the hardest thing to hear. Like, it's not like I'm saying pack your bags and go home, but I really, I really do feel like if you have that burning passion, like, and you love it, then you got to do it. That was like with me, like, I don't think there was anything. I, I, I feel very lucky because I, I'm one of those people who I don't feel like I really could have been that engaged with another profession. Like, I think it would have been really hard for me. I think I would have been really, uh, bored with, with not, if I had to do something that like, wasn't writing related, it helps me. So I, I, I assume that would help other people. And what do you have coming up? What, what's anything on your plate right now? Working on anything, any ideas, or are you just taking some time off because, you know, it's, it's a weird time in the industry and you've got to spend some time with your kids. I, Right now, I, I have had a resurgence of my dormant, or actually, I guess something can't be dormant if it never existed in the first place. So I'll say I have I have a couple future future projects that I have uh, that I that I'm currently working on. When, one one of the good things about getting shut down, getting our lost symbol pilot shut down, was I had about I don't know what it was six months sitting around the house, and so during that time, I wrote a feature. Um, a horror movie, because like I said, that's really what I've always wanted to do is write horror movies. And uh, that one uh, has now a very good producer and we're getting a director for it. And then that got me another job rewriting someone else's horror movie. So that that's what I've been spending time doing. I'm very, very happy about that, actually. Um, but none of nothing is has been shot or anything. So I, I can't really announce anything anywhere. Would you would you take a break from TV to concentrate on features? Would that be something that at this point in your career that you would really want to do? Because in the very beginning of the interview, you know, you said you you wanted to write features originally. At this point, because you've had success in the TV industry, you know, you and you are people know your name. Is it something that if it if you took a break to concentrate on features, would that hurt you in the TV area? I don't know. It might, it might, it might help if you got a movie made, um, then, then that would probably help. I don't, I don't know. It's, I guess the question is like, like how long can you kind of have a layoff before people forget about you? Um, I don't think it would hurt. I'd be happy to just write movies for a little while. That'd be great. It's a totally different lifestyle, you know, like, like it's just, it's more, it's more isolated and it's more, it's slower. And, and again, show running is completely different than writing a movie. Show running is just such a crazy, all consuming thing. So yeah, no, I'd be, if I, if I, if I could just go write horror movies for years, I would do that in a heartbeat. (laughs) If I can make a living, if I can make a living doing that in a heartbeat. And that was going to be my final question, which it is. If you write a feature and it becomes a huge hit. So now you're at the point where you don't have to go back to TV if you don't want to. Would you be fine? As you, well, you just answered. You'd be fine just writing, riding out your career, writing features, or would you eventually maybe get a little bit of an itch and go? Eh, I sort of miss TV. I'm sure I'd get an itch. Um, I don't think, as a side note, either of these two things I'm working on are going to be like huge hits because they're both very small movies. So I don't think I'm going to have to face that conundrum of having to decide if I want to go back to TV because I'm sure I'll be in TV for a very long time. But yeah, I probably, I probably miss it. I, pro- I might miss like the, the, there, there is, as tiring as it is, there is something really, really fulfilling about like being able to pull all the levers on something like being, you know, um, 
being able to, to, to cast who you want, being able to, to, to be on set, to work with actors, to work with the directors, to really kind of immerse yourself in a world that you've created. I like that. I like that. It's, um, yeah. Well, that's awesome. I'm, I'm glad you got to come on today. Yeah. Now, how can people get in touch with you? Oh, um, they can't really. I mean, like, I don't, I'm not really on, um, anything. <laughs> okay. Well, now, okay. So people, you can't get in touch with them, but what you can do is go back to IMDb, hit up IMDb and look at his amazing body of work and go watch <laughs> the shows, watch cold case. I'm telling you, I got a soft spot. I don't know. It's, it's just, and I, I interviewed Jeremy Ratchford. I, I live outside Philadelphia. And I just have a, even though it wasn't shot in Philadelphia, I have a spot. So people go check out Dan Dworkin, D W R. K-I-N. Uh, go check out my website, coopertalk.net. You can find 895 episodes up there. Email me, cooper, at coopertalk.net. Um, Twitter, it's at coopertalk. Instagram, it's at coopertalk1. Remember, I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guest. Don't forget, drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins, and I'll talk to you guys next time.